Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. Joining us today on the show on the other side of the mic is my guest, James Stickland, CEO of Elwood Technologies. Very excited to have you on the show, James. Thanks for coming. I love the, the backdrop that you have, this fine piece of Bitcoin art. Is this in your office? This is. Yeah, you find me in the office with uh, obviously our glorious Bitcoin artwork here. So yeah, absolutely. It's a, a rising and falling piece of artwork based on how this market uh, bears out. <laughs> we need to uh, up our game here at the Block Crypto. I am also in the office three days in a row, probably, you know, going to get that employee of the month award. Just, <laughs> just putting that out there into the universe. So Elwood is really interesting. I, I'd probably say they're you know, the top or premier institutional digital assets platform over in Europe. James, you have had a very interesting career. You led teams at HSBC and JP Morgan before heading up operations at Elwood, which is backed by, of course, hedge fund heavyweight Alan Howard. So James, walk us through for, for some of our Philistine listeners who are maybe not familiar with the hard work that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about Elwood. Yeah, well, look, Elwood was was really created to, to institutionalize the connectivity for, for crypto and digital assets. So, you know, a product that's been around for since about 2017 was really built to enable Alan in the early instantiations to trade crypto, you know, derivatives, options, futures. And again, those were uh, were early stage kind of thought processes back in 17 
They've obviously matured a huge amount, but we've built a technology platform, an order management, execution management, and, and portfolio management system to allow you know, traders in the hedge fund world, in the asset management world, but also consume us as an API. So yeah, technology infrastructure to power connectivity and ensure that we've got great reconciliation. So did it kind of start as this incubated project within Alan's firm? They're thinking about kicking the tires on crypto, but they don't have a partner through whom they can sort of tap into the liquidity of the market. And then from that, Elwood was born? Yeah, very much so. You know, Alan, when he wanted to get involved and, you know, anyone that knows Alan knows that when he backs a domain or an asset, you know, is, is very engaged and very supportive. So had an expectation that the market would be mature and the infrastructure would, would equally be mature. So in absence of there being something of that nature, this was a platform that was built, you know, in-house, ground up, you know, every line of code written by the team here, you know, in a way that could be utilized by Alan, um, Alan and his PMs to trade the digital and crypto world. And, and that obviously created a, a unique opportunity for us to, to fulfill a market need, you know, beyond Alan alone. And so walk us through the mandate or suite of products. Is it kind of like a prime brokerage offering? Yeah, look, so it's more of a connectivity provider um, and, mm. and it's more of a representation, a ledger, you know, if you will, you know, of your digital exposures. So, yes, you know, we connect into prime providers and, and we do some work in the prime space, you know, more really to enable flow. So, you know, by no means I would want to overshoot the, the statement and say we're full prime, um, you know, and even I think the market's not really kind of full prime in, in many respects today. That doesn't stop a lot of people from saying that they are, though. It <laughs> does it not, right? It's, uh, I think there is a reality check on a lot of these things in terms of the maturity levels. You know, we, we provide some credit, let's call it that, right? At this point today, you know, that will evolve and we'll partner and build. Um, but really what, what people need is in this pre-funded market that, you know, they need speed, you know, they need comfort around the counterparty. And they don't really want, you know, big revolving, you know, kind of prime facilities in many instances today. What they need is, you know, short-term credit so that they can maximize the market opportunity. So, you know, clearly that'll evolve. But I think today is, you know, credit's the need, not necessarily the full end-to-end prime solutions. Since you kind of got started, have you noticed the market change, the liquidity, the institutional participants? Yeah, look, a, a lot's changed. Uh, and I think that the sort of maturity and the maturing you know, knowledge base is changing. You know, look, we're a, a kind of flag bearer for the institutional involvement, right? You know, we have new investors that, you know, from people like Goldman Sachs and Barclays and, and Commerce Ventures, you know, that really are those kind of, you know, to your point, you know, institutional Wall Street behemoths. And their knowledge base is increasing. So I think market participation's definitely changed. I think, you know, the entry point for all of those tier one institutions is still synthetic. You know, there's still a huge amount of derivatives opportunity for them while they're getting comfortable with, you know, risk weighted assets and what that may mean for, for regulatory so that they can hold, you know, crypto on balance sheet. And equally, I think to your other point on, on liquidity, that's definitely changing too, right? I think we're, you know, there's a lot of consolidation around you know, a number of top coins and, and tokens, as we know, there's a, a long list. I, I think somebody told me yesterday it was 18,246 available coins in the universe at the moment. You know, I'm probably one out already at this point by just even mentioning that. 
but the depth of liquidity is kind of missing in a lot of that space too, right? So there's a need, there's a cycle, and then I think there'll be some degree of consolidation. But the way that this thing trades, and it was Michael Batnick who tweeted this out. I mean, you look at the price action. I don't know if you can see my phone here, but you had like a double BART. It swung up from, you know, 29,000 to 31,000 and then plunge right back down to 29. That's not trading like an institutional asset. To Michael's point, it's trading like it's a penny stock. No, it's a valid point. And, and you know, there, I think that there is, you know, clearly some maturity that needs to happen. The, the, the true, you know, Wall Street giants aren't trading at any scale, as we know. They're certainly not trading in the spot market. You know, at this point, you know, I think that that is still very, you know, driven by, you know, hedge funds that are obviously maximizing the value on the institutional side. And it's still obviously incredibly retail driven. You know, we're facing, you know, a number of neobanks and fintechs that are obviously powering it for their customers. And, and we see the flow, right, you know, in terms of people's involvement and activity. I think that the institutional action, you know, is more at the derivatives end of the market, which does clearly have a you know, an impact on some of these spot opportunities in the future space. But yeah, I think that there will still be some maturing to happen before this thing, you know, trades at, you know, two, three, four percent kind of day over day type uh, movements. It'll make our lives a little bit more boring, though. <laughs> Look, it'll make the uh, it'll make the podcasts more boring. That's for sure. When we're talking yeah. about traditional movements of two percent. Be like, yeah, so uh, Bitcoin moved uh 20 basis points today. That's pretty exciting. Let's dive into that, James. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys raised a $70 million Series A, which was co-led by Goldman. So you probably know a little bit about what you're talking about when it comes to the institutional adoption of crypto and Bitcoin. What's it going to take for them to touch spot any of these banks? What do they need to see or what needs to happen? Look, I think, you know, RWA is the sort of the three letter summary that people are all corralling around before they can make the big leap. I think you'll see a number of Asian banks actually lead the charge here. You know, we know a number that have actually written to the regulator and said, you know, unless you tell us otherwise, you know, we should be driving down a route of, of X percent, you know, and anyone can argue that's, you know, 40% of risk-weighted assets or 60% or even up to 100%. I mean, you know, the sort of, you know, the range is so broad, but I think that even getting an understanding, you know, of what the range should look like will, will allow people to really participate. I think in some weird twist of fate, actually this recent market condition and the alignment to things like Bitcoin, you know, pairing and pegging, not too dissimilar to, to tech stocks, is actually a good opportunity and a good reflection for the regulator, right? You know, they can see that, you know, the argument's been over the last couple of years that actually that should be the alignment of RWAs, right? Is how do you how do you peg it to to a similar standard to, to tech? So at least there's some casing points over these last few months, albeit it's been bruising for us all, you know, to be able to to look at that. So I think some clarity there over the next few months will really allow engagement on uh, on on spot and holding it on balance sheet. Yeah, I guess to play devil's advocate with myself. This cycle proves that tech stocks can be just as volatile as Bitcoin, if not more so. We could just pull up the Netflix chart to prove the point. 100%, right? You know, therefore, if you want to, 
you know, rattle the cage of the regulator from that perspective, you should argue that you should be holding 60% RWAs for tech stocks. If that were the case, then all of a sudden, maybe that dries up a lot of, you know, powder for investors, you know, and the kind of, you know, the banking institutions to trade, but actually it might even spread it further and wider as opposed to having it consolidated in the tech space. So either or, I think it's either the alignment happens and it's, it reduces down altogether from an RWA standpoint, or these things pair out. But the reality is, I think at least having that kind of history allows the regulator to make a decision, right? And I think the paralysis of, of no decision is, is worse than, than a sort of a tough decision at this point. Well, you kind of know what it's like to be within a bank and within sort of a, you know, the innovation lab, you know, a lot of people can criticize those places as being innovation theater, Yeah, but it takes a lot to push a bank into new nascent territories. I talked about this with a few folks who have left banks and gone into different roles within crypto. And the, the cycle that I sort of notice or have noticed over the last few years covering it is they try to get into crypto. There's people within the bank that kind of advocate for it and lead the effort. They hit these road bumps. Those top people get frustrated, so they leave, and then the cycle starts over again. How do you, or how do they, rather, break through these cycles? Do you see them breaking through this vicious cycle? No, look, I think, I mean, that's a fabulous summary and very true, right? You know, I think you end up with chief innovation functions, you know, being deemed as voyeurs to, to the real market that's going on. And then there's a reluctance to want to engage with those functions because, you know, can they really affect change? I think the intent is is always there in the, their chief agitation functions is what they should be, right? You know, they're there to <laughs> at least kind of agitate the environment and try and affect some degree of, you know, opportunity. The reality is there's still a huge amount of learning and there's still a huge amount of education. I think that crypto sends the sort of fear of God into many of the sort of banking institutions in terms of what it, what it means to them. And there's still all the ridiculous kind of elements of education that need to go on about what it is. I think that even if they change the vernacular to digital and not digital being, you know, web two, like actually thinking about digital in terms of tokenized assets, like that gives people a bit more comfort about where they should start the journey. You know, and this isn't roll in bank one and they should all start trading crypto spot and taking 100% risk weighted assets so they can start, you know, enabling that. But this is how do you use the blockchain, you know, most effectively to you know, register assets to, you know, affect contractual executions. And I know that's like boring 101, but actually it gets people on the journey and getting on the journey is like what we all have to do, like understand the chains, you know, utilize them effectively, tokenize assets, right? If you're here for the journey, you know, everything will be tokenized at some point, right? Be it real estate, you know, be it equities even. So, you know, deploy the infrastructure and start the journey, right? So I, th I think we see a bit of that opportunity in a number of the banks now. Yeah. And I wonder if the issue is no longer necessarily volatility, but still that career risk factor where they don't want to get involved in something that makes headlines for hacks, for rug pulls, for all of these different negative things or aspects about the space. 
So that's an impediment. Well, I think that's a fair point. You know, there is a, a lethargy that exists as well, right? You know, and that is a challenge too. You know, it's it's very easy to to point at the regulator and say we can't do anything because it's the regulator's fault. And that's the sort of trump card that everybody uses to make no decision, you know, on the banking side. And that is, to your point, what, what drives a lot of the frustration. That's why some of the market divisions that are a little more front foot, a little more aggressive when it comes to, you know, finding, you know, revenue generating opportunities are some of the best places that this thing starts the journey. You know, they, they do have a, a larger risk appetite and a better understanding. Actually, interfacing with the regulators is an opportunity, right? And I know I don't want to sound trite, but... You know, actually working with them to to demonstrate what could be done here, you know, is actually, you know, a great opportunity. So, yeah, I think three years ago when you said I want to work in, you know, I want to have a crypto function in a bank, people just sort of relegated you to the to the bowels of the uh, of the building. Well, they promoted you so high that you, you couldn't kind of see anything or, or do anything. I think now there's a maybe a reluctant acceptance that, that digital and crypto are a part of the immediate you know term, not even just the long term. So people are really kind of, you know, listening at the board level. How real are some of these plays in crypto derivatives among the large institutions? When I hearken back and remember my scrappy reporting days in the 2017 boom, Goldman was working and developing non-deliverable forwards for their crypto trading desk. And that kind of died into the ether, if you will. <laughs> and and now I'm seeing headlines again about Numora trading uh, crypto derivatives, Goldman, you know, in a Michael Corleone style getting pulled back in, JP Morgan. Are the volumes there? Are you seeing, does that trickle into you? How legitimate are these headlines from a substance perspective? Look, I think this time around, and and, you know, clearly I would say that, right? But this time around, I think it is real. I think the hedge funds have actually started that that role, and they're you know they're kind of creating significant returns and, and margins, as you can imagine. Like you know, a lot of crypto derivative specialists are you know are still able to make spreads they can drive buses through, right? Which is you know fantastic for them. Which is obviously therefore creating FOMO, and with the synthetic nature and capability of it, is driving that that real appetite now. You know, will that be is the frameworks and, you know, kind of documentation that people can operate on that they understand it? Maybe, you know, will it be non-deliverable for capabilities? Yes, I think it will be in some capacity. And then equally, it's just trading with counterparties, right? So, you know, you can push an industry framework through internally within a bank because it already exists. Mm -hmm. So if you can find smarter ways where products are already approved and it just becomes another part of the fabric and another sort of single threaded you know, offering inside the existing framework, then that will happen far quicker rather than trying to recreate the frameworks, which is where it kind of ran up against the buffers in, in 17 and 18. Understood. What do you think in terms of the market structure is missing? What's the missing link to really having an institutional wave? As, look, that is the sort of whatever is the right number, $32 billion question probably at this point. I, I think there are a few pieces that, that need to mature, you know, more and further. You mentioned Prime earlier. You know, I think, you know, having counterparties credit approved so that they can trade without having to 
you know, post funds or collateral will, will certainly help the institutions get involved and, you know, avoid some of the stickiness that exists today. I actually think that the infrastructure, you know, is still in need of, you know, upgrading, right? You know, and that's the, the tier one venues and exchanges and liquidity providers. You know, they, they built this on, on the wire and therefore we're scaling in real time, right? And we're scaling in real time with monstrous weights on, on the, those, uh, those wires now. So even rate fills and, you know, some simple things that if you were at NASDAQ and NYSE, you would turn your head to one side and think, what the hell, like that's, you know, business as usual. Some of those are still problematic in, in crypto and digital. So there's more work that we all need to do there. And we're a participant in that. But I think, you know, getting great prime, getting a credit approved facilities and, you know, the regulator making a call, that plus having some real stable infrastructure, that lights this thing up beyond all belief. You said $32 billion question. Yeah. Rather than it being a billion dollar question these days, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of value in some of these $32 billion venues, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. A lot of weight rests upon the exchanges as the sort of guardians of our crypto galaxy. They, they struggle with uptime and they struggle with customer overload. We see it time and time again. Is that a concern? Look, it's a concern if you're a, a tier one investment bank. You know, it's a concern if you're a tier one hedge fund. It's it's less of a concern if you're a digital native hedge fund because it's a world that you know and and that you you have the understanding for. You know, if I'm a institutional hedge fund and I enter this market for the first time and they say, "Oh, don't worry, the venue drops three times a day," and someone <laughs> scratches their heads and say, "Are you kidding me?" Like the normal traditional finance venues haven't dropped three times in a year. Yeah. So, so there is an understanding that needs to happen and a capability level that needs to, to increase. I think that, you know, really helps everybody, right? Because, you know, we've got a lot of funds putting LP money at risk here. And if they aren't getting fills, you know, very simple, right? Then they're not getting confirmation that fills are occurring. Then, you know, that's kind of 101, right? So, so there's a lot of work that will happen here. It's happening. Don't get me wrong. This isn't the doomsday story. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is happening and it's happening in real time, which is fantastic. And we'll all obviously, you know, be the beneficiaries of that. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling in rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive 
investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A crypto fin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. So what's sort of the game plan? Like, what do you've got working under the hood that you're most excited about and how are you going to execute on it? Look, so I think there's a big, much of the, much of the, you know, deliver, deliver, deliver. You know, is the kind of core message on that portfolio management, execution, and, and order management work. I think we'll do a lot more in the, the sort of risk space. That's a an, an ever kind of growing need as people are putting more capital to to work here. So being able to you know manage risk outs and being able to you know do real true back testing so that people can kind of enter with the knowledge. There's a lot more growth there for Elwood and our partners. There's also a lot of opportunity, I think, in the in the immediate term in terms of, you know, how do you do mat flow matching and, and, mm. and how do you sort of monetize some of those opportunities? You know, so rather than wait for, you know, five years or 10 years as the you know, traditional finance did with dark pools, like, you know, there's opportunities here to, to actually help people, you know, maximize margin and, and actually map flow here. So there's a lot more work that, that will come there and that comes with capitalizing on, on the flow. So looking at building out, an Elwood ATS of sorts? Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's lots of sort of partnership participation, I think, as, as part of that. It actually bodes well to have, you know, institutions there because they understand how to build the calculus, you know, and also they, they have the client connectivity. So there is, uh, you know, a, a unique opportunity, I think, in, in digital to do that. Interesting. I'm not aware of any um, crypto dark pool. What has taken so long for that component of, traditional market structure to find its way to crypto? No, I think it will come very quickly. And I think the entrance of some of the large caps with large kind of care orders and, and large volume single trades, you know, will drive that. To your earlier point, a lot of the, the reason why it hasn't happened so far is is liquidity debts, right? You know, there's, mm. you know, having the, the breadth and depth here is going to be essential as part of that. And then having the appetite at the other end to fill these things. So I think both those kind of, uh, you know, mitigating or, or kind of evading factors will happen very quickly. And then it gives us all an opportunity to, you know, to hopefully generate even more margin for the market. Interesting. You know, it's tough to kind of pinpoint exactly where we are in the market cycle. In terms of a long-term outlook, crypto is in a similar position to the broader market where basically all assets are under pressure as a result of the Fed looking to hike rates and take a more hawkish position. That's hitting crypto, it's hitting equities. But at the same time, 
I'm just looking at our site right now and it's fundraise announcement after fundraising announcement after new fund launch. So the money's still pouring in, but it's not, I mean, maybe it's creating a floor at 30,000 or something, but, and then of course we had A16Z announce a new fund as well recently. What's going to be the catalyst though, that kind of brings us back up or are we kind of just stuck in the doldrums as a result of this macro environment? Yeah, I think there's some clearly alignment to the macro market that we're sat within, right? You know, so to your point is 30,000, the new floor for Bitcoin, not a bad thing, right? If that is the floor at this point, you know, clearly a bad thing if you bought six months ago, <laughs> but sort of, you know, not, not a hideous thing at this point. And, and somebody was lambasting me that said, if crypto is now pegged to sort of tech, is the massive ARB opportunity and the massive kind of volatility, uh, now gone and it's like well hang on a minute which way do you want it right you know yeah. do you want do you want growth uh, and do you want participation or do you want mass volatility it's like yesterday you wanted one and now you're like hang on a minute so i think that you know back to your kind of core cool question i think there is some realignment let's say you know in valuation terms in you know kind of expectation terms but obviously the appetite's there that's key right you know and if you're in this market you're in it for for the long term, not the sort of next month return. So I think actually, as we're seeing, and we put out a report not to, to push that with PwC, where we kind of interview a bunch of hedge funds on an annual basis, but the growth in terms of people's exposures, you know, it's climbed steadily, like it's double digit percentages, which really does give, you know, a huge amount of, of assets, you know, that will go to work in digital and crypto, you know, and if that is as is forecasted, that can only be a good thing for all the market and it will trend out probably quicker as we would expect it than the macro environment and quicker than tech. And then, uh, you know, we can return to those heady heights of 60,000 and beyond that we, we've seen in the last kind of six, eight, nine months, right? So what has the trajectory of client growth this year look like for Elwood? Uh, good question. So you look, we're in our double digit kind of seek client count, you know, we'll be, hundreds of clients by sort of, you know, this time next year, which is fantastic, clearly. And that sort of shows you just the order of engagement. You know, we're not facing any consumer. It's all B2B. Some of our customers are B2B to C because of the neobank element of our offering. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we only face the sort of enterprise entities. So it shows you just how many people are involving themselves here to trade or at least to, to have a representation, you know, not, to, to sort of go on the sales front, but like the key for us is just making sure people have got control. You know, I think we're uh, a long way from the world of two years ago where billion dollar books were being managed on spreadsheets, right? You know, that I don't mm. think is good for anybody. And so, you know, there is an opportunity to, to do it more technologically driven. What are some of the needs of the more neobank fintech outfits that you're working with? It's a good question. I think that most of them, all started with a single phased approach, you know, so they said, oh, you know, I'm Neobank X and I offer crypto. And basically they were back to backing it to, to one venue, which is lazy as we know, and also will come under regulatory scrutiny at some point, because are you giving your clients, you know, best available X, right? Or best X, even if that mm -hmm. exists in crypto. So I think they're now, they're now looking at the next phase of their journey within digital. So they want to connect to multi-venue, they want to connect to, far more coin universes, 
They also want to face regulated entities to give themselves comfort when they go through their own banking licenses. So I think that that's sort of phase two. I think phase three is basket options and, and you know, the ability to be able to face the sort of synthetic nature. I'm not saying that neobanks are going to be offering derivatives capabilities tomorrow that, you know, there's a bit further down the pike, I would suggest. But yeah, I think phase three is is aggregated baskets and, and potentially even their own coin universes to support that. Mm, interesting. So like you could build like a, like a portfolio of sorts. Yeah. And that sort of gives people that sort of early stage journey into, into digital and crypto and, you know, it gives them some exposure, right? You know, I think most of the sort of consumer market, you know, in the, let's say, you know, 16 to, to 24 that have some, some disposable, clearly, you know, the world has changed as we know, but want some exposure that don't necessarily understand the full market, are, you know, looking for some guidance, right? So, so the baskets, I think, are a great way for people to have some exposure. How do you see interest in DeFi from your seat? Yeah, look, there's, um, you know, back to voyeurism on that question. Like, There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of looking over the fence, as they say here in, in the UK, right? You know, where people are kind of interested in knowing what's going on on the institutional level. You know, they see sort of opportunities to make, you know, again, widespread some, some sort of opportunity margin there. There's not a huge amount of deployment yet. You know, will there be? I, I think there will be. But I think, you know, we've got another 12, 18, 24 months of journey before we get real institutional action. You know, they need to get kind of comfort around CFI before they kind of, you know, jump into DeFi. But I think that it's happening. You know, we're obviously seeing it in our products and, you know, we represent DeFi in our systems, et cetera. So we're kind of prepared for the, for the weather. I would say, you know, in an innings term, it's probably first innings for the institutions mm. that are, uh, that are sort of, you know, actually trading and, and being involved in DeFi. Or maybe they're still tying their cleats in the dugout. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, hitting their bats on shoes, you know, kind of knocking off the dirt, <laughs> ready to go out. Yeah, we can keep going with the analogies, guys, until uh, <laughs> the show. Um, so what did you make of the Luna meltdown? What was that like from inside the firm? Was everyone's hair on fire? It was, uh, look, it was an interesting, uh, you know, few weeks, right? And again, not, you know, precursor, not to sort of, you know, jump on our own, pat ourselves on the back. We, we spend a bunch of time on looking at, you know, changes in liquidity depths and, and you know, how things are moving because of the way that we're regulated. So, so we were kind of able to at least call out some amber warnings to some of our customers. And a number of our customers were putting Luna on, on hold so that they could, you know, try and avoid some of the backtail meltdown that, that occurred. There was still a huge amount of people demanding access to it, which, you know, good for them, right? You know, they are obviously incredibly aggressive on a buying capacity rather than a selling capacity. So people desperately trying to buy on the way down. So, you know, we were trying to be a, a good participant and sort of, you know, reduce people's exposure because at the other end of that, unsurprisingly, they were looking for, for outcome. So, yeah, we, we were sort of in the eye of the storm, kind of being the bad cop in some respects, asking everybody to be a bit more judicious with their, with the offering so that they can, you know, minimize the downside risk for their customers and, and their, their own balance sheet. You were like the Michael Burry of this situation. Uh, you know, exactly. You, you know, I'm wearing obviously, you know, the, the little. what can we say? Right. Exactly. But yeah, look, but how did you see it coming? Well, honestly, this is a question that a lot of people have asked me 
How did more people not see it coming? And then, of course, the answer I always give is when the music's playing, you've got to dance. Yeah. But you you had a sense that something was up. What exactly was it certain metrics or something else? Yeah, I mean, we, we spend a bunch of time on availability of coins and tokens and liquidity depths and movement. And again, we, we do that so that we can try and get ahead of, you know, any potential runs, you know, very similar to traditional finance, right? You know, you can, you yeah. can try and understand any runaway. And you can sort of stress test the ecosystem under different parameters. If you had the models to give a picture of what the Luna ecosystem would look like in a certain situation, then you could see that X would happen or Y would happen. And you'd think that more hedge funds out there or more market participants would have, I'm probably describing these systems very sophomorically, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. And that, you know, back to that sort of earlier point about, you know, the risk models have got to evolve. The shock testing has got to evolve for everyone's benefit, right? You know, because we're all caught in the eye of the storm of, of those sorts of scenarios because they impact everybody that's involved in the ecosystem. And some people make great money on that still too, right? In terms of, you know, selling and or buying on the downward trajectory. But I think for institutions to be more involved, you know, they need to be comfortable with the risk models. And, and you know, a lot of that doesn't exist, right? You know, we know that that would exist in traditional finance because it's been tried and tested for 25 years with 50 different systems. You know, there aren't 50 different systems in 25 years of history. You know, market data is still kind of challenging for people to consume so they can even run these models. So, you know, I think some of those elements that we would like, you know, we'll continue to offer our customers, you know, will allow people to, to be a bit more forecasted to the market downside. I was uh, laughing with somebody that said, uh, you know, they haven't met anybody in crypto. And obviously, you know, it was not my statement. It was a, it was a, a friend's that said they've never seen a down market, right? And it's like, well, look, if you were involved in the last three years, you, you've only seen one way, right? So these shock scenarios you know, need to be tested out. Totally. So you're in a weird, uncomfortable sort of position where clients want to buy and you're kind of trying to give them a bit of a warning, but then they buy anyway. Yeah, look, our job is our job's to turn the music down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but some people some people want it to keep some people want to keep turning it up. It's um it's your cross that you have to bear. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Everyone does. It makes you stronger. So what should we expect out of the firm? You know, what should we be ready for? What type of headlines and what do you think people in the market aren't paying attention to what are your systems pointing to right now that might maybe it's the next luna maybe it's not maybe it's something good look it's a great question as well and i, I think that if you've been in traditional finance you know this movie plays out in a similar way for digital and crypto and, and therefore there's no reason why we shouldn't get in front of that and what i mean by that is building out the kind of ecosystem most effectively and, and a horrible word to use so my apologies but like making sure all the counterparties have, have been vetted and registered and were engaged properly thinking about liquidity depths like data is going to be key here and data is going to be you know so important to for people to be able to run those models effectively 
so that we're not blindly, you know, investing in, in the marketplace with an expectation that these big wide spreads are going to exist forever. And, you know, we can be lazy with our trading strategies and still derive the same, you know, outcome. So I think that people will get smarter. They'll get smarter because they have experience and they'll get smarter because they can look at historic data and, and start to look at this, you know, under a microscope. And I think that coupled with a, with a sort of maturing infrastructure is a hugely exciting opportunity. If let's say crypto is, you know, 10% of the FX market, or, you know, as it probably is at this point today, there's a huge growth opportunity here, right? So, you know, we're still very much at the foothills of this. And I think, you know, the next three to five years are going to be exciting as every, every real asset gets tokenized. So yeah, you know, long live digital on this, right? Indeed. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and joining the show today. Once again, we've been joined by our guest, James Stickland, CEO of Elwood Technologies. James, you, you mentioned um, a report that you put together with PwC. I'm sure you have other insights that come out of the firm. Where can our listeners um, dig into some of that stuff? So we are Elwood.io. So I'm super happy to, to be helpful for people that are asking questions that want to kind of dig in deeper. To your point, we have a an annual hedge fund report, which sort of shows the appetite of, of people's involvement here. So yeah, please come visit and, and reach out to us and, and we'll certainly uh, be hopefully good, uh, good friends and participants. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.